The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. I'm Abby Schultz, the senior writer at Barron's Penta, and I'm here today with Sarah Nason Terrahano, Global Head of Private Wealth Management Capital Markets at Goldman Sachs. And we're going to talk about how the world's wealthiest families invest based on Sarah's own work and also on results of a survey of family offices worldwide that Goldman conducted earlier this year, and it's a second survey of this type. Um, before we get started, just a reminder, if you have more questions, to write them in, um, and I'll try to get to them before our time is up today. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you Great. so much yeah. for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Um, so I want to just dive right into the the survey, um, and I was wondering if you could um, just kind of talk about, um, maybe start with, so the survey is called Family, well, it's a Family Office Investment Insights Survey. It's titled Eyes on the Horizon. And I was wondering if you could just start by giving us a snapshot of the family offices that you surveyed. Sure. Um, and and just by way of background, you know, we have a family office practice here at Goldman Sachs. It's called Goldman Sachs Apex. Part of my responsibility is I run that, that business. We're a global team and we're really focused on family offices that have professional infrastructure. And what that really means is that they have an investment team doesn't need to be a huge investment team, but they have professionals dedicated to managing the wealth of those families. And it means they have really unique needs, both on the investment side, but also on the planning side, on things related to next generation, et cetera. And because we have a, a separate practice for, for covering these family offices, and because we've seen a real increase in the number of family offices globally over the last decade, we felt it was important. We did our first survey. Um, in 2021 to continue to survey this population and really share the results with the broader investment community. We think there are interesting takeaways here for family offices and non-family offices alike. And so just you know, briefly going through the, the kind of client base that responded to this, 166 global participants um, from countries really all over the world. Um, and and can you talk about the the wealth of, sure. of these families? Yes, uh, they, are, just, they are this... very wealthy families. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so seventy two percent have in excess of a billion dollars, and so we're talking about um, a very wealthy group of family and uh, families, and really kind of their family offices are institutions and to themselves as they think about how to be the stewards and managers of this capital. Right. So it is interesting they the decisions that they make as investors uh you know what they might have to tell retail investors and so we could maybe other retail investors i should say and maybe we could talk about that as we go along sure. um and i i guess i think it might be useful to start by talking about some of the recent financial news and i want to get into result into some of the details of the survey but just starting to think about um we had the debt ceiling deal last week um and I'm wondering how that how that's affecting uh, how it's affecting markets from the point of view of these families. Like, how are they how are they reacting, if at all, to uh, movement in the treasury market, for instance? Um, 
Yeah. So look, I think I actually can take the the first thing you said about sort of how these family offices invest and how they're reacting to this. And I think it's a a pretty similar response. And I would say one of the most interesting things about our survey is that despite 2023 being a completely different macro environment in 2021, the asset allocation really stayed consistent. And I think that's fascinating. And I think it speaks to really the long-term approach that these family offices take. I think that's something that all clients, high net worth, retail, institutional clients can take away from this because they stay really committed to their asset allocation despite volatility in the market. And I think there's a recognition that markets can be incredibly hard to time. And if you get out at the wrong time, it's very difficult to make that up. And so a stat that we always share is if you look back, you've heard me probably say these in in other publications, but if you look back, for example, to 2009 to today, if you were out of the market, the 50 best trading days in what is almost a 15 year period, you would give up all the equity return of the market. And so I think there's an awareness of this with families. So what they do is they make tactical changes around the edges. And you bring up the debt ceiling point and treasuries. There is no question that there is a huge focus on treasuries and cash management right now um, that we didn't see uh, back in 2021. Now, family offices always tend to have an outsized allocation to cash. They take a more barbelled approach to investing because they have much higher illiquid alternative balances, 44% based on our survey. But they're paying a lot more attention to their cash today because we come out of an environment where you earned almost nothing on pat, on cash. It was the safety money. And today, you know, you can buy a six month treasury and earn almost five and a half percent. So the discussions we're having now, now that we got through the debt ceiling, I think in a much better way than a lot of us anticipated, you know, it was, it was smoother than expected. Um, now the question is, you know, when do you take your duration out a little bit more? Because we still have an inverted curve here. You're still getting paid more for this short dated treasury paper. And what I'll say is they're starting to talk about it, but most people are staying pretty short dated because it's hard to compete with, you know, yesterday we did for 5.4% for a six month treasury is, is hard to compete with. So that allocation to cash, and what was the allocation to sure, cash? Sure, um, 12% to cash and cash alternatives, Okay, um, but then another 10% to fixed income. So right. you add that together, it's 22%. It's about it's, it was 19% in 2021, so that is a little bit higher um, than it was in 21. Um, and I think that's just because of kind of how interesting the cash yields are to people right now. Right, right. Um, so you mentioned the 44% allocation to alternatives, which is interesting. But And a headline from the report was really that uh, families with tremendous wealth are far more willing to dive into risky investments. So they have this big cash allocation, but they dive into risky investments more so than other investors. I think uh, that 44% allocation is quite different than your average retail investor. Um, So what are you hearing from family offices today regarding the risks that they're willing to take? um, And how is that translating into their allocation? Maybe even, I don't know, let's, we could, we could talk about alternatives, but I was actually thinking about public stocks and bonds. What are you seeing there? And then we could go into alternatives. Okay. So starting with public stocks and bonds and then going to alternatives. Yeah. Okay. So on the public side, again, the allocations um, haven't changed much. So we're at 28% in public equities for the average respondent here globally. Yeah. Um, And so I think a high degree of comfort with the market mark-to-market volatility in equities. Um, and actually, interestingly, a high percentage say that they're going to continue to invest in equities. Um, and so I think, 
you know, I would call it cautiously risk on. I think our family offices are very comfortable adding exposure, particularly on dislocations. But also there's another kind of dynamic at play, which is many of these family offices have operating in companies and businesses that actually yield dividends and cash. And so they're going to put that money back to work and keep their asset allocations relatively consistent. Um, and again, I just think there's a higher degree of comfort with risk in general um, because they are comfortable holding assets through cycles. Um, they're more comfortable with mark to market volatility. And they've also set up their family offices in a way that there's a very strong awareness. And I think this is one of the really unique benefits of a family office of their cash flow needs, right? And so they have this all mapped out in terms of what their spending needs are going to be, you know, plans to meet capital calls on illiquids, for example. And so, and, and we're also seeing, you know, not a high degree of leverage in the system. And I think that's a lot of having the global financial crisis not too far in our rear view mirror of kind of understanding that leverage can be a dangerous thing if a market dislocates because you could end up being a force seller to, to meet those calls. So they like to have access to leverage, but they're somewhat conservative in how they use it. And so, you know, I think what all those things mean is that they've designed their portfolios in a way that they're comfortable taking risk, but it is very kind of thought out and planned risk um, so that they are able to withstand market drawdowns. Uh, that's, no, that's interesting, that kind of comfortable a comfortable form of risk. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and so you mentioned that they, they uh, I'm sorry, the public stock allocation was about 28% down from just down a tad from two years earlier. Yeah. Within that, it was 31% in 21. So 21. if you think about it, maybe it went from, you know, if we take, we went through the stats earlier on cash and, and fixed income, it, it seems that it went into that bucket. Right, right. Um, so one thing that that you pulled out in your report was that, the, that a lot of these families are interested in secular growth sectors. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk about what that means and what sectors they're most interested in. Yeah, so that really means, you know, we think about um, what are the areas where they're investing, not so much um, in terms of asset class, but actually the themes that they're investing in potentially across asset classes. And so the, the top two for our um, survey respondents were information technology and healthcare. And given the amount of time I spend with these families, this is not surprising. Um, I think there are a number of factors at play. We can go through some of them. The first is that many of these families over, if you think about sort of the outperformance of growth and um, in the last couple of decades have made their wealth in these areas, right? So either through companies going public or building companies that they sold. So that's a piece of it. Um, but, but the other part of it, I think, is that family offices really want to be at the forefront of innovation. Um, that is something that is very important to them. And I don't think there are any two places more at the forefront of innovation than information technology and healthcare. Um, what I'll say about healthcare, I think healthcare has, has become increasingly important to families for, for two reasons. One is on the back of COVID, just a kind of realization that addressing things in the market related to healthcare were sort of necessary to keep the global economy stable and keep us all safe. But let's also remember family offices at the end of the day are individuals. Um, they're people just like you and me. Um, and almost all of us have been affected in some way by chronic disease or other aspects um, of the healthcare system. And this is a really interesting place that we see families sort of charitable ideas converging with their investment philosophies. 
And so an example would be you might see a family, you know, donating to the, a hospital on a cancer center and at the same time on the investment side, investing in new technologies to address either cancer detection or treatment. So that they take a more holistic view. Yeah, especially in healthcare, I think, because I think it's so close to their um, philanthropic passions. Right, right. Um, so in the in the alternative arena, uh, these so these are generally less liquid, longer right. duration, riskier investments, usually private markets, if not entirely, except for perhaps for hedge funds. Uh, so it it shows up in this big forty four percent allocation. Um, can you just talk a little bit about you know why why that's the case why there is such a large allocation to these alternative assets? Um, yeah, let's just start with that. Sure. So I'll point out I think the reason that they're viewed as more risky is because they're illiquid, which creates risk, right? Okay. But at the end of the day, if you don't require that liquidity um, because you have a high allocation to cash or you know you have cash flows coming in in other ways, it does mitigate that risk. So that's mm -hmm. that's one part of it. Okay. Um, the other part is just, you know, we've seen over cycles, the outperformance of um, private assets over public assets. And so, um, you know, you are getting paid historically for that additional kind of liquidity, lack of liquidity risk. So that so that's definitely a piece of it. I also think there's an element that a lot of wealth creation in these families has come out of large illiquid portfolios over time, whether that's building up companies that, you know, either stayed private or went public or large allocations to hard assets like real estate. So these are families that I think are kind of highly comfortable with illiquid assets, and they have been for a long time. And then the last thing I'll say is that while, you know, certainly in a model, it would show a higher risk, at the end of the day, the lack of kind of daily mark to market in some of these alternatives does make it a little bit easier to stomach the mark-to-market volatility of like looking at your stock portfolio every day. And I think that's certainly an element as well. And we've talked about that with, you know, family office heads as well. Um, and what differences of any do you see in the appetite for different kinds of alternative asset classes today? Sure. I mean, the, the theme that we're hearing the most about right now is private credit. That's okay. not surprising to me. That's mm -hmm. an area where family offices are really um, probably the most underweight. So they they actually showed only a 3% allocation to private credit. I don't think that's surprising. Um, we come out of a very low interest rate environment. Um, I would say family offices are naturally a little biased equity for all of the reasons around wealth creation that we discussed previously. Um, but then yeah. there's... Um, you know, just other elements at play as well, where a lot of these family offices haven't necessarily spent as much time historically in private credit. So they're really getting up the curve. And then I would say the last thing is um, when you think about the interest rate environment that we came out of and most private credit being subject to ordinary income on an after-tax basis, it just hasn't been as compelling, particularly to U.S. investors, than some other assets I think now that we're getting to a place where you can get, you know, in some cases, well into the double digits in private credit with also potentially more muted equity return expectations, people are really spending a lot of time here and digging in. Um, and we're having a lot of conversations with clients around private credit. Could, could I actually ask you to define private credit? Like, and what exactly is it and how does it relate to the, like the loan market, for instance? Sure. So um, if you think about private credit, just think about it as loans that are extended, like without QCIPs that can be publicly traded. Um, and so, you know, that would be 
um, an institution making a loan to a business um, that is a private loan. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that, you know, we've certainly seen that business grow and I think it'll continue to grow on the back of some of the changes in the regional banks that we've seen. And there's a whole slew of investors available, private credit funds, plus a small group of private clients that actually have the ability to do those type of loans on their own that, that, um, you know, will make this, will stabilize this market um, and be there uh, for loans for these um, corporates um, and companies when they need them. Um, And so it's not liquid in the same way that you can trade a bond and a QCIP is, right? Because it's not publicly traded. And therefore you're getting a higher return, but you're giving up liquidity. I see. And how long do these loans usually last for? Yeah, I mean, most of these vehicles, it really depends, are anywhere from five to 10-year vehicles. There are certain vehicles that have more liquidity that allow certain aspects of quarterly liquidity and payout coupons. Um, Many of them involve floating rates, um, which, you know, has been kind of advantageous as as rates move higher. Um, So there's really a full spectrum there. What I would say is that Um, because underwriting credit is complicated and you have to understand things like waterfalls, et cetera. We do see a lot of people using managers for this to create diversified exposure versus, you know, just having exposure to a single corporate, for example. Right, right. Um, So one other aspect within um, the private markets is that larger family offices, your survey results show, tend to invest directly within subsectors. Yes, Um, So they're investing directly versus using managers. Why is that the case? Yes. So we see a real mix. And I would say that the direct investing typically is an area where they have significant core expertise or they've built out a team that has core expertise. And I think one realization that family offices across the globe have is that it is nearly impossible to be an expert at everything. And so the majority of family offices take a hybrid approach where they will use managers for areas where they do not have that core expertise. Something like biotech is super niche and specific. And unless you have a team of scientists on your staff, you may not be doing that type of investing directly. And so I think that the core is often where the family made their capital, right? And so Mm -hmm. if we have an entrepreneur who has, you know, great expertise in information technology, they may do a lot of direct growth investing. But we've also seen um, a different approach, which is actually to say, we wanna diversify our direct investing away from our core. And so maybe we hire a team of experts in an area where the family doesn't have core expertise. So we've seen both, but what they have in common is they're only really doing direct investing where they have core expertise. Mm. And we always advise families like go slow on this. You know, most families start direct investing alongside a manager. So maybe they invest in a fund and then they do some co-invest with that manager and they really dig in deep and understand what their diligence processes are and really kind of educate themselves on what it means to be a direct investor. There are different responsibilities, there are different factors than investing via a fund, which is obviously a fiduciary relationship. Right. Um, but we definitely see a mix. Um, and what about club deals? What, and what kind of trends are you seeing there? Yeah, so, um, and club deals really refer that when family offices come together and really create a bit of a club and invest together. Um, You know, we see that happening. We see that happening with families in regions um, where they can share resources or in um, sectors where they have 
sort of common expertise and strategic expertise. Um, and in effect, when we do direct deals with family offices, in a way, it's a little bit what they are because a lot of what we do at Goldman is deliver a really interesting deal flow, direct deal flow to our family offices. And we often have family offices coming in in groups together doing their own work alongside more classic institutional investors. And I think that's been a real shift with the explosion of family offices over the last decade is they have the capability to do the diligence work that a more classic institution like a pension, an endowment, a hedge fund would do. Right. So are you seeing more of these? Then? We are. Yeah. We are. Yeah. Um, also within alternatives, what about real estate and infrastructure? And I'm particularly curious about the latter, the infrastructure, because of the legislation that went into effect at the end yes. of 21. The Inflation Reduction Act. Um, so maybe we'll, we'll start with infrastructure and then chat real estate. Yep. But on the infrastructure side, that's an area that we're having a lot of conversations. I think it plays well to family offices for a few reasons. Um, one is it tends to involve hard assets, which family offices are comfortable with because they tend to have a longer hold period than your average institutional client and they're comfortable holding assets for generations. So this idea of having exposure to these hard assets is quite appealing to them. Um, but I also think there's an element of family offices being really focused on their legacy and their communities. And these infrastructure projects are at the heart of you know, not only our country, but often communities. And I think that's something that family offices wanna be a part of. They wanna to contribute to society in that way. Um, I also think it's good diversification away from where we know family offices are already overweight in terms of information, technology, and healthcare um, and other more growthy assets. So I think it complements their portfolios really nicely. Um, when it comes to real estate, that's an area where our families have a high degree of comfort Many do invest directly in real estate. Um, they've often held assets for long periods of time. I would say the focus there is really on multifamily. Um, I think it's an area where families can where, continue to see opportunities for growth. Obviously, you have the inflation protection of being able to reset rents, but you have other dynamics at play where um, with mortgage rates going higher, a higher demand for rentals. Um, and I just think that's an area where family offices have historically done quite well and also really understand the market. They understand the development. Um, they understand the communities they're invested in. We had a question from a, a listener about whether you might see a pullback in real estate just because of higher rates. Is that happening or is it affecting certain sectors, maybe? I think it's others. affecting certain sectors more, commercial and retail being, you know, the most exposed there. Um, you know, I think on the multifamily, we're a little bit less concerned just because of that dynamic that might affect single family housing, which I definitely think is a factor given higher uh, mortgage rates um, could have an inverse effect on multifamily given that people who are not buying homes may be renting homes. Yeah. Um, so that's how I would, that's how I would address it. And just to go back to infrastructure funds for or infrastructure for a second, are uh, families investing mainly through funds or directly? A combination. I think a okay. real combination. We certainly have families who have experience like directing investly in ports and marinas and tow worlds and energy transition. And then we have mm -hmm. others who really haven't spent time there and they're using managers and experts to do so. And then we right. see that hybrid approach where they're investing with managers, but they're looking for managers who will provide co-invest opportunities. And so right. a bit of a blend. Um, so I wanted to ask you about cryptocurrency, which has been okay. very newsworthy <laughs> this week. Uh, uh, 
you know, the SEC brought these lawsuits against Binance and Coinbase, and it's been kind of a disruptive week as a result. Um, but, I, but I understand that you found that family offices uh, really aren't very interested in crypto. They're more interested in digital assets. And so I was wondering if you could talk about your findings, um, maybe starting with crypto. Sure. Well, I'm going to start with that. I'm not the crypto expert at Goldman Okay. But okay. I, but I do <laughs> know what our family offices are doing. And you're exactly right. I think what, what's happened with crypto is families have really made up their mind on crypto. So we actually yeah. see a higher percentage invested than we did in 2021, but far less interested for the future. I think in, in 21, close to 50% were interested for the future and today only 12%. And so what that tells us is that families have made up their mind. They understand how volatile the asset class is. If they don't feel like they have core expertise, they're just not participating. And um, I would say the families that are most focused on crypto are those with really extensive direct trading experience who can kind of stomach that volatility associated with the asset class. Um, so, so that's kind of what we see on crypto. I yeah. think as it relates to digital assets, it's much more about an ecosystem and how it's going to affect how we all live and work in the future. So blockchain and tokenization are themes that families are super focused on. Um, and that's where I would say people spend the most time either through direct investings or direct investments or through managers. So there's still an interest in those technologies and what. Yeah, there might... absolutely is. Yeah. Um, we have a question from Lucas uh, who is asked about emerging markets uh, and whether, you know, whether there's um, value there that, there, that that maybe some of those markets seem undervalued. What are your families, what are the families you survey, surveyed? Uh, how are they approaching emerging markets? Yeah, it's interesting. And look, there's certainly, you know, if you look on a valuation basis, there's certainly some value to be found in emerging markets. But I would say um, our families tend to be overweight developed markets from a risk perspective, because I think um, you know, the thought is that you just take on a lot more risk, geopolitical risk in some of these emerging markets. And yeah. I would say the families, um, you know, are overwhelmingly overweight developed markets. So our U.S. respondents are 77 percent invested in the U.S. Um, and, you know, I would say that people are looking to pick their spots in emerging markets. So a big theme has been India, where families have been spending time. I think everyone, you know, has seen the stats on the population growth in India and also obviously India has been at the forefront of a lot of technology innovation, which is appealing to family offices. Um, what I would say is that when family offices think about investing in emerging markets, um, they tend to do a lot of work to make sure they really understand the underlying market. And so um, it's typically families that have trafficked there before um, and are kind of ready to stomach that volatility. Right. And, and do you find similarly that they invest in in areas that they know like where they've had business interests or yeah i'd say we see a mix mm. um you know sometimes we see like a more generalist approach like investing in things like bonds of the government um okay but we do see you know on the direct side for example a family who um really understands information technology may be focused on looking for niche information technology companies that they can really understand yeah. Um, but what always comes up there is, are there jurisdictional issues that they may not be fully familiar with, you know, government factors, et cetera. And so they're typically doing a lot of diligence around those regional risks because it's far more complex than just finding a good company. Right. Right. Um, another question from a listener, Hal, asks about hedge funds and what kind of allocation um, 
uh, to hedge funds you've seen and where you see that going? Yeah, it's fairly modest and it hasn't changed. So um, 6% is what it was in 21 and it's what it is today for our family okay. offices. And I think um, some people would categorize that as a surprisingly low allocation to hedge funds. I think there's a couple of dynamics at play there. One, I think many families actually do hire professional investment teams to trade portfolios or have large concentrated positions in equities to begin with, again, either through wealth creation for companies that go public or, you know, owning piece of companies that go public. And so I do yeah. think that, you know, tends to impact them a, a bit um, in terms of their allocations there. And then because they're so focused on the private side, they tend to focus more on super liquid parts of the public market. And so doing, you know, cheap beta exposure or just ETF exposure that they can get in and out of in a day. So I think that's yeah. why you see a lower allocation. I will say there's a focus, a real focus right now on some of the macro funds, given, you know, volatility and opportunity we see in FX and rates. Um, and so we see family spending time there. I see. Um, so I have a basic question from Michael, who's asking, how has a family office started? And probably related to that is like, what kind of wealth level is required? Yeah. It's a great question. Um, there's no hard, fast rule, but there are some things to think about and consider. Um, and, and we get this question a lot from clients, so, so I mm -hmm. talk about it a lot. And I think it's one, a very personal decision, but I also think that you really need to map out the actual cost. At the end of the day, we don't want families digging into their principal to create family offices. You really need to have a pool of capital that can create the kind of interest on that pool to fund the family office operations and also continue to fund your lifestyle, right? So you mm -hmm. have to take both of those elements into account. And it's not as simple as hiring a person. You know, you're going to hire lawyers and people to structure all the legal aspects of this, the entities of it. You likely will want some sort of office space. Um, and so, you know, you just really need to make sure you have a very good handle on the costs and that you have a reasonable expectation of what your portfolio can return on an after-tax basis um, to pay these professionals, fund your lifestyle, et cetera. Um, and if you meet that hurdle, um, I think the advice is to start small. Um, you can always add. It's difficult to take away. So yeah. figure out the areas where you think that having um, a professional managing the wealth of your family is really important. And people take different approaches to this. Some people start with more, you know, an investment per professional. Some people start with more of an accountant or a trust and estate person. Some people are super focused on the next generation and being sure to educate the next generation on the missions and values of the family and to really be a steward of their capital. And these larger family offices have all of the above. And that's ultimately the goal, to be a steward of their capital and ensure that it's around for generations to come right. and to ensure that it has the impact that the person who made this money wants it to have. Right. Super interesting. Thank you so much, Sarah. I can't believe we're, we're done already. I know was... that went by so fast. Well, you made it such a great conversation. So thank well, you, Abby. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and I want to uh, thank um, our listeners and to let everyone know that you can join us again on Monday when Barron Senior Managing Editor Lauren Rublin and Deputy Editor Ben Levison are going to talk about the outlook for financial markets, industry sectors, and individual stocks with Christopher Rosbach, who is founder and managing partner of Jay Stern. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks, Abby. Thanks, Sarah.
The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.